This is the Canadian Investor, where you take control of your own portfolio and gain the confidence you need to succeed in the markets. Hosted by Braden Dennis and Simon Belanger. The Canadian Investor Podcast. Welcome to the show. Today is September 12th, 2023. My name is Braden Dennis, as always, joined by the very charming Simon Belanger. Breaking news here. Breaking news, Simon. What is what do we have right out of the gate? This is we're starting with fire today. Yeah, so my, my title is SNC Lavalin is no more. Uh, although that is a bis, bit misleading because you know they're still there. They're just changing their name from SNC Lavalin to Atkin Realist, and they'll be changing their ticker from SNC to ATRL. That'll be effective uh this upcoming Monday. Now it, it's interesting because we actually talked about it. Uh, some- At- Atkins Realist? Yeah. And there's like an what accent. I, I'm not sure. I didn't read into the whole uh, logic behind it. I think there is some logic, but... Um- <laughs> well, the logic is... How do we get ourselves away from this name and rebrand? Yeah, I th- but I got to dig more into this new name. Yeah, I think it's Realis. I think there's an accent on the E as well. Uh, so I think they wanted to probably kind of keep a little bit of their French roots there. Preserve their French Canadian yeah. roots. But I was listening to an interview with uh, their CEO, Ian Edwards, who's been CEO of SNC-Lavalin for more than four years now. At first, he was interim. I think it was June 2019. And then I think a few months later, I think it was like probably November of 2019, they made him like the uh, permanent CEO. He mentioned that it's part of their transformation plan, which started by exiting the oil and gas and construction industry and fixing underlying issues like culture and, you know, parts of the business. Obviously, culture, there was... uh, you know, some a discovery that they had done some bribes and I think it was in Libya, if I remember correctly, amongst other countries to be able to get some contracts over there. There was a big scandal because of that. Now, they're really focusing on nuclear infrastructure, water and specifically around North America and the UK. And they're focusing on profitability and paying down debt, which has not been easy because a construction business they exited was dragging on their profitability. So it was a good business, but the fact that they were exiting it and the CEO was mentioning that longer term, it was the right move to do, but shorter term definitely faced some profitability headwinds. Now, according to him, there's also been an increased interest in nuclear power because of the energy crisis that we've seen over the last 18 months. He didn't mention this specifically, but I'm assuming he's kind of lining that up with when Russia invaded Ukraine and the close call in terms of Europe's energy dependence, specifically Germany over Russia. I know last winter there was a lot of people concerned that there could be some massive energy shortage in Europe. Thankfully for them, uh, they had some much warmer climates uh, or much warmer weather than uh, normal. So, I mean, it, it's interesting. Obviously, I think it makes sense for them to to rebrand over here. Uh, we'll see if it works out. I mean, it looks, I haven't done a deep dive or anything and looked at their financials really closely, but it sounds like they're doing the right things. They have a very unique moat with nuclear and specifically Canadian deuterium uranium nuclear technology. So they are like an extension of the Canadian innovation that is Canadian deuterium 
uranium reactors. It's a very specific type of reactor. It's very safe. It uses H3O, which is hard water, as it's cooling uh, through the reactor. Many different continents and countries have adopted Canadian deuterium uranium technology. Uh, SNC Level N is, you know, they're one and the same with the technology. They say here on their page, they are stewards of Candu technology, which is, uh, you know, pressurized heavy, wa- heavy water reactors. I used to be in this world and I, and I know their kind of foothold on this technology. My only concern here is that Europe is saying they recognize the need for more reactors, yet their, rea- their actual actions are decommissioning and not refurbishment or new build. So it makes for a nice storyline. I'm just taking action over over inte- like what they're saying right now. And I think that that's still really unclear. No, I think that's a good point. And I mean, I think there's different factions in Europe, too, because I think France is still very reliant on nuclear energy. And I don't think... But they're heavily decommissioning. Is it? Yeah, are they? So I, I haven't yeah. really d- yeah. uh, dug deep into that. France France is the, is the, the most so of this, uh, which is really, frankly, kind of disappointing, right? Because this is the lo- the only true base load no carbon emission during operation technology for for baseload reliable power and uh, no reliance on that gas. So in other it's words, bit, it's, it's not intermittent like wind, solar and these other kinds of renewable exactly. power. OK, no, that's good to know. Exactly. And I mean, we had someone, I think, inquire about like potential nuclear energy plays. Obviously, that could be one, but you have to make sure you do, do your due diligence because they were, you know, I just listened to this interview and the CEO was quite clear that they're still kind of in a turnaround phase. Um, they're not looking at acquisitions or anything like like that they're really focusing on profitability especially in the second half of this year paying down debt and then focusing on what they do well and then down the line they may look at acquisition but that's not part of their immediate plan but um i think you know it's probably a smart move to to change the name rebrand um i don't think snc rings that well for a lot of people so we'll see i mean i just thought it was interesting to talk about that on the podcast yeah, definitely. Time for a rebrand. And, uh, you know, what was once a Canadian darling in innovation and technology, I, I hope they can can get it back. Uh, no doubt. Like I said, they do have kind of an intimate relationship with all, a lot of the engineering projects in this country and uh, power as well, both on the hydroelectric side and the nuclear side. All right, Simon, we, today we got on the slate here. You're going to talk about the Bank of Canada rate hike last week. I'm going to talk about retail inflows, which has been remarkably strong. Um, the Enbridge acquisition, which will scratch both of our heads. And then we'll talk about the Instacart IPO. Simone, let's kick, kick us off here with last week's Bank of Canada rate hike. Yeah, so this one was really interesting because um, really... I mean, I think a lot of people were predicting that it would pause, the Bank of Canada would pause last week, especially as we were getting closer and some data was coming out that uh, basically showing that the economy, you know, just to put it bluntly, is just slowing down. And before I get into the main points, I guess, um, David... EB from uh, BC, the premier from BC and Doug Ford are probably taking a victory lap right now because, you know, I'm sure they're going to say that, hey, we sent a letter and they listened to us. 
<laughs> oh yeah it was all them yeah no for sure uh j- jokes aside though here's what the bank of canada said regarding holding rates and i listened to the press conference afterwards i was a day after in calgary from tiff uh, pretty much you know just what was in the release he just kind of recycled it a little bit in different words but saying the same thing now the economy significantly slowed compared to their expectations in the second quarter excess demand in the economy is easing there are concerns that the base effects will push headline inflation higher with oil pricing showing signs of increasing cpi remains elevated with the july cpi print coming in at 3.3 percent after dropping to 2.8 percent in june China's economy is significantly slowing, and I think that's putting it lightly. Like, there's some serious headwinds in China, and whether people want to admit it or not, China's a big trading partner for a lot of countries around the world. So, some slowdown in China will affect, you know, not only China, but Canada, the US, and other countries. The tightness in the labor market is starting to ease gradually, but wage growth is still quite strong at around 4 to 5%. He didn't mention that, but that's them saying that it's a bit too high to their liking. They are committed to that 2% inflation target. He repeated that several times. And listening to his speech a day after, it's really clear that the Bank of Canada is wrestling with really two competing goals. Obviously, their main goal is getting inflation at 2%. And I posted on that uh, on Twitter. But the other one is supporting the economy and financial institution, making sure things don't break down and people were pushing back saying oh no there's no dual mandate maybe not but i think it's implicit obviously if stuff starts breaking down or we enter like a depression they're probably gonna ease on that two percent inflation target and i was listening to steve soretsky who co-hosts the looney hour and i think he had the best line to describe what the bank of canada did a panic pause. So I think that's just the best line, just because I think they were probably looking at increasing and then the data started coming in and probably realizing that that lag effect is starting to take place. And they figured that we need to pause right now and reassess until the next decision. Yeah, I like that. Because kind of like an oxymoron, a panic pause, (laughs) right? (laughs) Yeah. No, I thought it was like the best, like, you know, if you want to describe to someone what the Bank of Canada did last week, two words, panic pause. That's it. Don't say any more. Yeah, very fascinating. You know, and, and this just goes to to show predicting interest rates is a game I don't play because I, I don't like playing games. I, I'm not a very good loser, Simone. I like winning. And I don't play games. I, I lose every single time. And predicting this stuff, I lose every time because the Fed or the Bank of Canada doesn't know what they're doing at the next meeting from when they finish the previous meeting, right? And these are the people who are the most intimately close to the situation. So uh, treat, treat it as such. You know, it leans into our next topic really well. You go, Who's got money anymore? You know, where did everyone, <laughs> everyone's money go? Uh, last time I, I checked, my, my bill for everything has exceeded. Every time I leave the house, I spend $300. I'm um, like, what did I even do today? Who has any more money? Well, retail investors do. I, I, so here it is, a quote from uh, a report done by Public, the, the brokerage. 
In 2020, a wave of retail investors entered the stock market. During the next two years, approximately 30 million new brokerage accounts were opened in the U.S. By 2021, retail investors comprised 25% of total equity volume. Wow. That's pretty significant. 25% of total equity trading volume. It's all those stimmy checks. (laughs) All those stimmy checks straight into the bank. It's straight into the gambling stock market casino. Double the decade prior. But here's what's fascinating uh, for me is they've stuck around. Uh, In February of 2023, retail investors across the platform or across platforms, so not just theirs, across all, all the platforms that they track on a data perspective, not to mention a bunch of them are publicly traded, which disclose active accounts and, and trading volume. Many of them are publicly traded. All-time highs for weekly inflows with $1.5 billion pouring into the market in a single week. Participation in the public markets remain extremely high from individual investors. I have here on the screen for the wonderful listeners of Join TCI. <laughs> who get to not only see our faces and our portfolios and the graphs we show, but also me eat lunch during Simone's segments today. (laughs) You're like, you know, uh, they did a pause at the Bank of Canada. I'm like, please don't ask me to say anything. I have soup in my mouth. I'm, that was your cue <laughs> to you ask me to show the chart. So, yeah, well done. That's that's it right there. Look at this 2020 skyrockets in terms of daily net inflows by individuals. And the trend is just actually in continuing to go up. Now, of course, there's ebbs and flows. But my major takeaway here is how sticky the DIY investing by individuals regularly putting money to work in the markets, you know, (laughs) whether they're putting in the casino or long-term investing, I'm not sure. But through late 2021... You know, in the fall, November of 2021, times the, the good times stopped rolling. 2022 was the first time these, what, 3 million new brokerage accounts or, no, sorry, 30 million new brokerage accounts were like, oh, the stock market just doesn't go up and up every day. So, you know, like, uh, there's, you know, there's, there's times of flat and there's times of real heavy drawdowns, especially on some of these high flying tech names. Look how strong daily net inflows has persisted through 2022 and back to new all-time highs in 2023. This is not what I would have expected. I would have expected a pretty severe drop-off in the second half of 2022. And then, okay, maybe you know inflows back in 23 when the good times are back. But this is sticky, man. This is a sticky group of individual investors that are putting money in the markets. Weekly inflows are solid and strong and growing. The dollar cost averaging technique seems to be resonating with you know, these 30 million new brokerage accounts. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting chart. I'll be interested to see it, say, like six to 12 months from now, just because, you know, talking about the economic data that's starting, you know, 
to roll over a little bit and we talked about retail earnings and pretty much all the retailers are saying the same thing right but they're not impacted the same but what they are saying is that consumer are shifting from non-essential to essential spending and when does that start hitting people's savings and then people's investment i'm hoping that it stays right. high like i'm definitely hoping that's the case but clearly like people will probably sell their investment before they sell a home if they have a home and stuff like that so i'll be I'm actually surprised that it stayed this high. I'll be, I'm with you uh, in the past year or so. I'm fingers crossed that uh, it does stay this high because it shows that people are resilient and are able to, whether it's cutting on maybe some things, some kind of little luxuries to be able to keep investing. Now, this is surely anecdotal, but this is perhaps, uh, you know, a, a serious trend here, which is. People have grown up, especially in Canada, with the notion of save, save, save so you can buy a home. You know, that's the the number one financial goal. That's, you know, real adulting 101. You know, buy a home, start a family. But there's no good investments other than buy a home. Have you seen how much money our parents have made on their homes? Yada, yada, yada. You know, that that type of narrative is persistent through through generations and now it's taking no one can buy homes yeah, it's taking yeah no one no one's, no one's being able to buy homes the the, the price of homes has far surpa- far surpassed disposable income uh, and it's remained high in an environment where rates are materially different yeah. Um, and so, so, so this creates a, a really interesting dichotomy of save, save, save. And then people are going, wait, but even if I do rent or if I, if I am an owner, there's this wonderful wealth creation machine of being able to invest in a broad basket of the best businesses in the world, you know, like, this iPhone that I'm addicted to, this Instagram app, this, you know, the, the, all this stuff that people are so used to interacting with, it's not very common that they grew up knowing that they can actually own a piece of those companies. Now, it sounds extremely obvious for, for, re, for investors who are sophisticated and understand this, but that's not a concept that everyone across all status of, 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 of wealth understand right out of the gate or, or, or finishing high school. And so that's amazing to me. Like that, that, that's exciting to me that, that people are having that realization and sure it's anecdotal, but the, the data is the data is the data and it, it is undeniable how sticky retail participation has been. Yeah. And just to get back to housing for a second, I mean, we talked about it early on, the number of people like that argument, I don't know, you must have heard it before, but you know, when you're like, why pay rent when you can pay your mortgage and then pay right. down the house? Uh, but people never take the time to actually do the calculation. So what's the total cost of owning a home? And what's the total cost of renting? You compare both. And in the vast majority of cases, at least when I did the calculation for Ottawa, I mean, it's much, much cheaper 
to rent and you don't need a massive amount of money to put as a down payment which you can invest and you can add that extra money and invest it as well when you do those calculations sometimes it may make sense to own a home but sometimes it may not and a lot of people I think never take the time and I think I mean I tweeted about that like I think yesterday was I think we just we need better financial education in schools yes people are like oh it won't solve everything I know won't solve everything but if can just bring a couple percentage points higher in terms of financial literacy as a broad base for our population i think that would make a big difference every time i hear why would i rent why would i pay someone else's mortgage when i you know that yeah oh yeah that narrative how often do you hear that i just cringe and i don't say anything i just let people you know you know i'm not gonna I'm not gonna change their mind <laughs> We could change no. their mind at the bar, like you know, just let the let those things pass. But more and more people are understanding. Yes, you can achieve returns in other asset classes, and, and that's not a concept that everyone knows. You know, at at birth, yeah. And 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 if they never get taught it, or they have no experience in in the public markets, or never you know bought an index fund or an individual stock or any asset other than real estate. That's not a concept that they're familiar with. So, yeah, it's pretty fascinating. And I think that this, you, you know, we could probably talk about this all Yeah, day. I was going to say, so, I was going to add something else. Huge but it can won't, of worms. Yeah, it won't. Maybe we, <laughs> we do another segment where we uh, talk a bit more about that. I mean, I'm pretty passionate about the education piece, too. You know, yeah. just kind of the basic, you know, of understanding. I think just a lot of people don't understand just the basics, like compounding, how it can work for or against you. And just the basics of that. But anyways, we won't. Uh, yeah. This episode will go on forever if we don't move on to, to Enbridge. You know? We're going to we're going to solve education by the end of this podcast. You know? yeah. we're, it's, there's, there's, everything's going to be fixed. Yeah, exactly. I don't think so. But, you know, I think I'm I'm of the mind. If you take small measures here and there, it kind of adds up right over time. But um, to go to Enbridge. So the big news, I think it was last week. Um they came out and said that they would be buying Dominion gas storage and utility assets. So Dominion is located in the U.S. Um, right after we actually had finished recording, I have in my notes here, um, we got, you know, the news that Ambridge was making this uh, purchase. And they're purchasing for $9.4 billion U.S. dollars and the assumption of $4.6 billion U.S. for a total of a... S- slick 14 billion dollars so the the assets Oof. yeah it's it's a lot of money um and enbridge already has a lot of debt so we'll we'll get to that towards the end here but um at first glance what's what's your reaction on this i think you and i were texting back and forth and i i no longer have any enbridge takes because i feel like i'm missing something and you responded with i i don't think you're missing anything but like I swear I must be like, I, I can't have the same take for the, the last decade. And the, the debt load just increases and increases. And they seem to just have unlimited money pay out all the free cash flow to the dividend. There's got to be, so, you know, I know, I know electricity infrastructure assets really, really well. Gas is a different beast that I'm like, 
not 100, like I'm not even close to as educated on, you know, how they build their rate case, how they build their CapEx plans, how pricing is like, I, I don't know half of that stuff like I do with electricity assets. So I, I just don't have any more takes anymore, Thibault. No, and that's that's fair. And I mean, even so, I'll give kind of my take here and just explain a bit like, you know, what they're getting and generally what Enbridge looks at in terms of their own version of free cash flow because I had some people pushing back when I, I said, well, it doesn't look great for free cash flow and payout ratio. So, you know, I do get where they're coming from. So let's look at the assets first. So they're buying approximately uh, asset that serves 7 million customers in the U.S., including the East Ohio Gas Company, which currently serves more than 1.2 million customers in Ohio, Questar Gas, which serves about 1.2 million customers across Utah, Wyoming, and Idaho, the Public Service Company of North Carolina, which serves more than 600,000 uh, customers kind of ironic that it's called a public service company and it's sold by a, a private company but anyways that, that's uh it's not the first thing right um i'm a private company <laughs> but i operate for the public exactly i up that, that's my new motto motto for all my companies i'm a public serve i'm a public yeah, good exactly. you guys like you're welcome mm -hmm. you're welcome that we exist so <laughs> now these assets they're buying, they are regulated, which I'm sure it's a big reason why Enbridge is doing that because a lot of their assets are currently regulated, which, you know, does have its benefits there. They'll be financing with a mix of equity and debt. The transaction is expected to close in 2024 and would make Enbridge the largest gas utility by volume in North America. Now, my take is that, you know, it, a bit like we were talking, it's a bit confusing because it's not on the first hand like their stock was trading at, you know, all time highs or anything like that. So if they do issue equity, it's going to be diluting shareholders more. They'll also need to issue debt, which will probably be in the 6% plus range. So not cheap debt. Um, the U.S. government also has been pushing hard to reduce emissions. So that could hit the business that they're buying. Although, you know, we are seeing certain US, U.S. states, uh, mostly the red states, pushing back against that. And who knows if a Republican gets into office. Um, there might be more lenience on at least natural gas, which is typically the cleanest of the fossil fuels, at least to my knowledge. You you probably know that better than I do, but that's what I've read. You're nodding, so I'll, I'll figure, I'll just say yes. It's a mix of nodding and in inhaling Costco pesto. Okay, perfect. Uh, so I'll just finish. So like I was referencing, Ambridge uses... Uh, I guess a metric specific to them. Um, they've come up with this own metric. It's distributable cash flow. Um, so this is, they define it as, and try to make sense of this because I've reread this so many times and it's, you know, anyways, I'll read it. You tell me. You're not allowed to use DCF <laughs> as an acronym. Yeah. You know, like, no, that's already an acronym that the finance world has allotted. You know? Yeah. So anyways, they they came up with this metric. It's like, obviously, I, it's not a non-GAAP metric, which that's not a, an issue in itself. The fact that it's non-GAAP, there's tons of useful non-GAAP metrics. But this one is a bit interesting, I'll just say. So DCF is defined as cash flow provided by operating activities before the impact 
of changes in operating assets and liabilities, including changes in environmental liabilities, less distribution to non-controlling interests, preference share dividends, and maintenance capital expenditures, and further adjusted, and this is the best part, for unusual, infrequent, or other non-operating factors. So that's the really the last part, especially where it's like, okay, so it's basically at the discretion of management so that's a black box yeah so uh, why where i have issues here is it's not unusual for either real estate investment trusts REITs or utilities to use funds from operation that's the most common one i've also seen a cad cash available for distribution but that dcf is very specific to enbridge and that's where there's some red flags that start maybe not red but at least orange flags that start happening to me because i've reread that multiple times and i've searched i tried to like you know search different like what does this mean what does that mean outside of enbridge and i'm still kind of confused to what it kind of <laughs> what it is as a whole. So they say that their payout ratio for their dividend is well below, uh, you know, their distributable cash flow. It's a sustainable level. But my pushback on that is, yeah, why are you using this and not something that's more widely used by the industry, like funds from operation, which is used widely by capital intensive businesses? Yeah, this one's a bit of a head scratcher. Like, you're not allowed to go adjusted, adjusted EBITDA. You know, like you, you you get one adjusted. No, this this is this is a confusing this is a confusing business from the accounting and financial statement perspective that I've never understood. And and I it's not for a lack of trying. <laughs> I've really tried the statements, the debt load, the distribution, like the the dividend. The CapEx plan, these acquisitions, how does it all add up? And, and I've never been able to answer that with confidence. And that doesn't mean that it's, there's something wrong or sketchy or Enbridge is a bad company or bad asset. I just don't understand it. And I think that that's important to disclose, right? Because there are some businesses that you'll look at time and time again, and, and, and you'll just have so many questions and, and head scratching things. You'll look through the footnotes and you'll see minus <laughs> adjusted for unusual, infrequent, or other non-operating factors. And you're like, that's not a, that's not a number that I know or want to know. It's <laughs> I think too that, that's the important part. Yeah. I don't want to know that number because it's, it's not a number I, I, I'm comfortable with. Uh, because that that's just a complete black box and and frankly poor governance uh, you know and and not shareholder friendly and so for those you know for those reasons I'm out yeah no I think so too I think it's just a good point look maybe you know there's nothing wrong with it but it's very vague I can't make sense of it and I've looked at a lot of capital intensive businesses and you know maybe I'm just not more smart enough to to understand what they're saying here but especially that last line 
to me, it screams like, oh, there's a lot of subjectivity that goes into this. They can right. kind of put in some stuff that they don't want impacting their DCF. Um, but anyways, I know there's a lot of people that own it because, I mean, we look at the TD, most bought socks, and Enbridge constantly yeah. pops up on there. So I know a lot of Canadians uh, do like Enbridge. I do hope it works out. It's a collection of localized monopolies for gas yeah. distribution. I mean, that's... I do hope it, you know... Easy, it's easy to like yeah. that. Yeah. It has, like, I don't have the stats, but I, I remember checking uh, just a couple of days ago. It has under perform even total returns over the the i think last five or ten years whatever period you look at it has underperformed the markets pretty significantly i think i underperformed the tsx and underperformed the s&p 500 so keep that in mind i know the dividend is very alluring and and that's total return total so returns in before in before people say yeah but what about the dividend we're talking it. about total yeah we're talking about total return it's it's underperformed so I think enough yeah. about Enbridge, but I'm trying to get a guest on the podcast because I know you won't be able to record in a couple of weeks from now. So I'm setting up some guests to uh, basically someone that knows the business well that can potentially demystify it because, uh, you know, it's a pretty complex business to dig into and not one that I'm overly excited about. So I think a guest is perfect for these kind of situations. Yeah, it's it's like... It's really easy to understand, like the actual business. Mm-hmm. The, the actual yeah. business is a collection of, you know, distribution monopolies yeah. for Nat Gas, mm-hmm. and Nat Gas is one hundred percent required for humans to live in this climate uh, in terms of heating, and it's also a very important asset for power generation. In, here in Ontario, only for peaking power that those combined cycle Nat Gas plants actually come on. But it is used very much so in the summer when everyone's AC is on. And so that from that perspective, no confusion. You know, <laughs> we're good. It's, it's when you actually do financial analysis and, and look through the statements. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's okay to not. It's okay if things are outside of your circle of competence. There's a lot of great businesses to own. Let's talk about Instacart. Instacart, have you, have you ever used this uh, service, by the way? Yeah, I saw your note. Is it even available in Canada? Yeah, it is. Oh, I didn't know. <laughs> I thought, yeah, I, I, yeah, I thought it wasn't available in Canada. I thought it was like Uber, you know, groceries or whatever. Um, I didn't, I know my, I have family members in the U.S. that use it pretty frequently. Yeah. Yeah, you can use it for sure in Canada. And, and you know what? The, the experience is kind of nice. Like you just basically do your grocery shopping from your computer screen. Or your or the or the mobile app, so from that perspective, it's very fast because you can just kind of like search like I need bananas, you know, I need bread, you know, you just type it in. <laughs> so from that perspective, it's kind of amazing. Um, and of course, they got this huge, you know, stay at home bump when everyone is forced to at least give it a shot, right? What kind of fees are you looking at? Just out of curiosity. So, no, no, you know, yeah, I okay. am, you know, I am and cheap. Oh, I mean, um, I am too. I think that's one way you can easily cut costs is remove some of those kind of nice to have, but you don't really need. I just yeah. mean that I used all my free, like, oh, okay, okay. <laughs> I used all my free delivery things. And then I, to be honest, I'm not sure what it costs after that, but it clearly wasn't enough for It clearly wasn't a value proposition enough for me to stick around. Um, 
Plus, I'm a I'm a real Costco adult now, Simon. No, I, I know. Think yeah. They have, well, the reason I'm asking is Instacart. You know, we're seeing like I'm I'm hearing it in my everyday life more and more anecdotal is people are you know they're feeling the pinch right now and they're trying to cut where they can without affecting too much their lifestyle. And to me, um, I don't know the business. I haven't looked at their financials or anything. But to me, logically, this is something that people, if they need to cut, that's going to be at the top of the list. It's just like such a convenience economy type thing. Yeah. That being said, though, since you have, you know, like if you're shopping at a big grocery store and you're, you know, I'm shopping at the the superstore, the one that the Loblaws superstore, they have basically, it's like kind of like a Walmart. They have everything. And they have, you can basically go by like pamphlet deals and like what's on sale. So you can actually be pretty frugal easily because those things are hard to pull off in the store in terms of actually going for all the deals and the like it's a lot easier to do it from a screen than physically being in the in the store. So I, I don't really know. <laughs> don't so really they know. deliver it to you or do you like yeah, they, they deliver, deliver it okay. To you. Okay. Yeah, someone just like Uber, someone yeah. goes and and picks up your groceries. And, and if they don't have that item in the store, they'll be like they'll message you on the app and be like, is this okay instead? And they'll like send a photo of it. Oh, you yeah. You get to like approve or deny I it. I heard stories <laughs> of them like putting substitute that make no sense at all. No yeah. sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're just like drivers, you know, there's very experience of yeah. grocery shoppers versus drivers. Yeah, I want bread uh, and you so, got me chicken, but uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thanks, man. Really appreciate that. Uh, okay. So I love reading S1s because Instacart filed an S1. And for our new listeners, an S-1 is just the name of a form that companies file with the U.S. SEC, the Securities Exchange Commission, with plans for the company to go public via initial public offering, a.k.a. IPO. Like we always say, there's so many acronyms in this world that sounds fancy and complex, but represents concepts you know we all know and are actually more intuitive than you may think. My, my actual advice here is like, side note, people... In in whatever industry they're in in their career, you're gonna feel, see a lot of people use jargon in meetings and stuff. Like they say a lot of words and that don't mean a whole lot. If you can communicate with just like words you'd use with your friends and actually get your point across, you come off more trustworthy and uh, and intelligent than using jargon. Uh, just my my hot tip. All right, Instacart. So Instacart is a grocery delivery platform. You do your grocery shopping. You press order and someone goes and does your shopping and it shows up at your door. Like, you know, one of these magical Silicon Valley infused businesses. It is the ultimate gig economy convenience economy of an idea. The same way people drive to, you know, sign up to drive Uber. People can sign up to go do your grocery shopping and deliver your groceries. Now, this is one of those businesses that are real VC dollar, low interest rate phenomena because you look at these businesses like Uber and the knock on them for so long is like the unit economics are horrendous. You got to like burn $4 billion a quarter uh, for years and years and years, you know, raise tens of billions of dollars to, to get it off the ground. And the risk of that they'll ever get the value of the money they raised is so small. But because we're in an environment that that may never happen again in our lifetimes, it actually becomes really defensible because who can replace 
who can replace it? Um, and so I don't know if Instacart deserves that kind of, you know, accolade that an Airbnb or an Uber does, but it is an interesting thing to think about. So they will go public under ticker cart, which reached a $39 billion valuation in its last round of financing. Actually, no, not their last round, but that was their peak round of financing in 2021. At the peak of, you know, startup <laughs> yeah, bubble. Yeah, good luck with that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This IPO is $26 to $28 target share price, which represents a $9.3 billion valuation fully diluted. So a quarter, roughly, of the peak valuation. All right, any thoughts before I get into the actual, you know, business and stats about their, their S1 here? No, no. I mean, I, I was looking at your notes for the stats. So I'll probably chime in for that part, but no, not too much to add. Okay. So the question as I look into their S1 is, is is this a story of hard comps from the boom they had uh, in 2020 when, you know, they won me as a customer and then I turned off? Or is the growth really, really down, like in terms of new customer ads? Or is it a sign of the times in terms of valuation compression? Now, my thoughts are probably all three, but let, let's let's see for sure. So they have two segments, which are transaction volume. Uh, sorry, transaction revenue, which is, you know, a take rate on the, the total order, which is 79% of the revenue. And advertising, which is 21% of the revenue. Just like I said, you know, long enough time horizon, everyone sells ads. They, they sell ads on the platform for shoppers, uh, you know, to, to pick up certain items. And so... Roughly 80-20 between transaction volume, revenue, and advertising revenue. They did two and a half, just a little over two and a half billion in revenue for 2022, which was up 39% year over year. And they did roughly 1.5 billion in the first six months of this year so far, which is an increase of 31% year over year. The take rates on that gross transaction volume are 7.2%. And 2.7 for the advertising split. So these have been trending up by a few basis points. Looks like every quarter based on what I'm seeing here on the S1. Here's where I get some a little bit of concern is that the gross transaction volume, which I believe is the most gross transaction volume and number of orders are the most important KPIs here. And they're growing a lot slower than revenue. For example, it only grew 4% in the first half of this year compared to the first half of 2022. And so look at the look at the difference between 31% revenue growth year over year but actually only 4% gross transaction volume growth. And so what are they doing? They're just hiking take rates. They're just they're just they're just doing pricing power. And that's great that they can display pricing power, but is that the sustainable move here for this business or are they just trying to show revenue growth at all costs? I lean towards the latter, but um, I don't know for sure. The business, so they have like this marketplace, which is the core business. They have this enterprise platform, which works with these large grocers to build them out, e-commerce, logistics, and more. And then they have the advertising business. And so in that transaction, they have retailer fees, customer fees. And then they also have this membership program called Instacart Plus, which offers unlimited delivery, just like, you know, all these platforms have the subscription cost that will Uber like take one. away. Yeah. the yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. It'll take away the, 
delivery costs, right? Yeah. It's like free shipping. It's like Amazon Prime, you yeah. know, they kind of carved out. Which, by the way, model. Uber won. I've had it on and off, and I believe I've paid a total of $5 for it for probably nine months because I... How? I just get it when they offer it for, for free for a month or two. Uh. And a couple times <laughs> I've gotten it for a month and cancel right before it ends. And they're like, would you like it for another month for $1? Like, okay, I'll do it. And then that's what I do for those kind of subscription. When it goes back to regular price, I just cancel. Yeah. You and me both, man. We're cheap. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no matter how fast our no matter how fast our net worth grows, you can't shake the frugalness out of us. No. <laughs> it just won't it won't shake. All right. So my biggest concern here are the gross transaction volume is not growing. Well, it's growing less than inflation. Yeah. So especially on, you know, I mean, grocery, which has seen 10%. It's barely growing. Yeah. Yeah. It's barely growing. All right. Here's something interesting. Orders, number of orders last year in the first half of the year was 132.3. I guess that's in millions, 132.3 million this year, 132.9. It has grown for all intensive purposes by exactly 0%. It is the exact same number as it was last year, minus, you know, a couple thousand orders. Yeah, it's just the order size that increased slightly. That's it. Yeah. Just inflation, but even less than the actual inflation number. So they're showing this really nice gross profit growth, uh, gross profit growth, nice gross margins, nice EBITDA, adjustment, 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 EBITDA. Who's, <laughs> Funny how who's, they, who's don't, counting anymore? they don't put their operating <laughs> margins on. Huh? It's kind of, yeah, they just happen yeah, to exactly. leave that out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, leave that piece out there. But orders and gross tra- transaction volume, like the two KPIs, like, you know, I built a business all out about KPIs and how important they are for public companies. The most important ones are not growing at all. Like they're flat, like 100% flat. And that's very concerning that they're just hiking their take rate on the revs. And so I'll balance that with, I think they have a lot of optionality pulling levers to take, you know, to keep growing this massive opportunity of grocery, just being, you know, the technology business inside of grocery, especially with their uh, enterprise options that they have uh, available for those customers. I think that that's interesting. Grocery businesses are extremely complex, and I think that they've actually carved out something quite defensible here with working with a lot of these large grocers. They said that they have 85% of the market in terms of large grocery store chains who use Instacart. And the 2020 cohort of people who started using it is relatively sticky. Of course, there is some natural churn, but I have here from the S1 that... It's respectably sticky. I mean, that's that orange line here on, on for the video here for Joint TCI. Of course, there's some churn, but relatively sticky. Yeah. And you're seeing the new cohorts for 2022 and, and 2021 get added on. Pretty profitable business here in terms of, at least on the gross margin side, uh, how much that actually falls through to free cash flow. I'd have to look through more with a fine-tooth comb. But interesting business, obviously one that has had a huge drop in valuation, really hard comps, really hard to build off that, you know, huge surge they had between 2019 and 2020. My question 
here moving forward is do people care enough or is there enough of a value proposition for people to really pay attention and care about this and keep using this? I think the idea is awesome because you get your groceries delivered. People are busy. Brilliant. I think it's awesome. But the numbers around gross transaction volume and orders flat year over year is extremely, uh, you know, I'll use your term there. It's not red flag, but it's at least a yellow or an orange. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, it's more of if anyone's interested, I think my recommendation would be take a step back. Don't FOMO into this IPO. Give it a year. I would say, like, personally, I would give it at least a year. I mean, I'm not considering it as an investment, but at least a full year to see how things play out in the public market and you have more data available and be able to make a better decision based on that. Um, And the other concern is just, especially from the membership side, to me, Uber just offers better value. Because you can use it for yeah. different things. You can use it More for stuff. Yeah, the groceries. You can use it for obviously transportation, order food uh, from for delivery. Um, so I think that's going to be a bit of a challenge for them is because I think Uber has done a really good job and much better than I thought they would four or five years ago. Honestly, they've surprised me. I didn't think Uber would be that good of a business at this point in time. They've really... I think it's time for us to dig into the business because it's... It's trading basically very similar to its initial IPO price, and the business is materially better. Yeah. Like, not even like, mm-hmm. not even just a little bit better. It is so much better than when they IPO. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I haven't looked into a deep but from what i've seen is they've done a pretty good job of at least making it like a one-stop shop for all things kind of delivery transportation and i think they've developed quite a sticky ecosystem so um yeah i think that's a and great their largest competitor lyft i mean it looks like they're heading for bankruptcy at this point like i, I how much cash they have in their cash burn it looks pretty grim yeah, I haven't, I haven't looked at it either recently, but I, I, from what I've heard, is same thing. Yeah, yeah. And so, who's left? Basically, just this impossible to replicate network that they've built, and and they have so much optionality. Like with Uber's brand name, they come in, and yes, there's insanely complex logistics with getting in the grocery business. But as they go and they challenge more and more of the DoorDashes and the uh, the Instacarts for some of these adjacent opportunities, huge markets. If there, if there's someone has optionality, I think it's Uber. And so I, I, I think they're just a little bit more proven here. Yeah, no, exactly. Uh, nothing more to add. I wanted to talk about uh, Lululemon's earnings, but we can do that next week as we're running a bit long here. And um, I think I just, uh, and you got to go buy a car. I got to go get the bank draft to buy a car. Yes, yes. <laughs> there you go. It's all one and the same. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening to the pod. We really appreciate you guys. We are here twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays. And uh, we really appreciate if you go and subscribe to the, the Patreon at jointci.com and or leave a five-star review on the Apple Podcast Player or the Spotify Player. It really helps us appreciate us and gives us that beautiful dopamine hit. You might make our, you might make our day by leaving a nice uh, five-star review. So thank you so much. We'll see you in a few days.
The Canadian Investor Podcast should not be taken as investment or financial advice. Braden and Simone may own securities or assets mentioned on this podcast. Always make sure to do your own research and due diligence before making investment or financial decisions.